Well, good morning. How are you? Gee, after that intro, I mean, I don't know if I'll live up to it, really, honestly. 26 years and I'm still young. At least that's what my propaganda people are saying. Yeah, hey, I tell you what, this time last week, I was actually in Perth and I was preaching in Perth. But I didn't really preach, I just sort of bragged about here. Yeah, no, really I did, I bragged about here and I, and I kept bragging and I kept bragging and I kept bragging. I looked up at the timer and their timer is really good. Once you go over time, it goes into the red. And, it, and it, it's red and it flashes and, and, and by the time I finished bragging, it was red and flashing so I just had to pray and close, you know, that was, that was it. But uh, I want to talk to you about something that's important and deep this morning. Our meeting started off with a song and the first words we sang were, hope has broken free. That's a great testimony, but maybe that's not your experience. Maybe you've been a Christian for a short while and disappointment is your experience. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and disappointment is your experience. There was so much about disappointment and how to handle it in the Bible that I want to delve into it today. Let me tell you something that you may not know. In, we, we're all a bit worried about this, this guy in Korea, aren't we? <laughs> Kim Jong-un. When I say it, Kim Jong-un, it sort of it makes me less worried. <laughs> and he's, he's a long, in, the, the third in a long line of Kims who were dictators. And you think about Korea and you think, is everybody called Kim? Yeah, I know, they, I know they, have a, they have a footballer and his name's Kim. And they have a, a, a very good hurdler who runs at the Olympics and his name is Kim You Suck. <laughs> no, I kid you not, that is his name. And when he, win, when he wins and he runs around the, the, the track with the Korean flag, people are chanting, Kim You Suck, Kim You And he's smiling and waving. That's really his name. But Kim Jong-un is a man who is the third in a long line of Kim dictators of Korea. But Korea is an interesting place. I'll bet you didn't know this. In between, in the first decade of the last century, there was two revivals broke out. The first one was in Wales, the Welsh revivals. We've all heard of that. The second one was in Pyongyang which is the capital of North Korea. There was a revival broke out. Uh, There were a lot of Christian missionaries in in Korea and revival broke out in a prayer meeting and it spread. It spread right around, right around the countryside. There was no North and South Korea then, so it just spread all over. And it's hard to gauge numbers, but it seems that between 700,000 and 1 million Koreans gave their lives to Jesus, which is, which is phenomenal. And I didn't know this. I read this in Christianity Today, which is the, uh, the fountain of all wisdom, knowledge and truth on matters like this. But it was centred around Pyongyang. And it, it was so big that Pyongyang became known as the Jerusalem of the East. And the, the revival was, was widespread. And here is the skeleton in the Kim family closet. 
Kim Jong-un, son of previous dictator Kim Jong-il, son of the first dictator, the first uh, leader of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, that, that's, that's their family tree. But Kim Il-sung's father was Kim Hyong-jik. Okay. And Kim Hyong-jik was a Methodist Christian. And so was his father, who was a pastor, and so was his brother, who was a pastor. And the story goes, and Kim Yong-jik, he was an activist, and, they, and Korea at that time was under Japanese occupation, and he reacted against that, and he organised resistance movements and that. Uh, but the Japanese put him on their keep a watch on this guy list. And so he went into exile in Manchuria, where the Japanese were also... Um, active, and eventually he was he was taken prisoner and put into prison in Manchuria, and so all the Christians of the day this is this is Kim Jong Un's great grandfather, all the Christians in the area got together and they prayed and they fasted they they downed tools and they really applied themselves to getting Kim Jong Jik out of prison, and they believed that he was going to be released. They really felt that God was saying to them that this is, this is going to be the outcome. He's going to get out. But he didn't. And he died in prison at a young age, in his early 30s. And this, the disappointment was tangible. The disappointment that set in to his son still remained when he became dictator of the country. And, and at one point, it surfaced. The story goes that he went for surgery one time and he actually asked the doctor to pray for him. So it was still there, but he was so disappointed and dislocated from God that he led a a godless communist regime that was brutal and harsh on its people. And so that's the skeleton in the closet. Disappointment set in and it became something more. And the final destination for that family was a distancing from God and unbelief. And then generation, generationally, so much more. Because that family provided the leading cast members in an evil and harsh regime. It doesn't help to keep disappointment in you. To just, to just harbour it within you and hold on to it and let it fester and manifest in ways that sometimes you can't control. Disappointment can set in And it can be the beginning of a case being made against God. To be disappointed in God is to be separated from his capacity. Please understand that. There are, of course, people in this room, and you've had disappointments in your life. They may be small disappointments. The scale of the disappointment doesn't really matter. It's how you deal with it, how you embrace it, what you do with it, what you subject it to in God that makes it not a disappointment anymore. What you need to know is that when disappointment sets into you and becomes a part of you, it can rule the culture of your heart and manifest in so many ways and on so many levels and be captured in your DNA and passed on to the next generation, as it was with Kim Jong-un. The Bible speaks about this condition. It calls it hope deferred. It's disappointment. It's hope deferred. But we don't want to let it get to that point. 
We want, it, we want to nip it in the bud before it gets to that point. Because we'll read a verse about this in a minute, and the consequences are worrying. For some of you, this, this may be painful. And I've titled this sermon, The Awful Grace of God, for reasons which will become obvious later on in the message. But I'd like us to read a verse now from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. I want to read it in two versions. First, the New American Standard. It says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. See what hope deferred can do. can make your heart sick. It can dominate the culture of your heart and turn it a certain way. It can bring the roots of unbelief and distrust in the Father into your life. And now in the message, the message version just frames it a little bit different. It says, unrelenting disappointment leaves you heart sick. That's what hope deferred is. Unrelenting disappointment. Disappointment that has happened at some stage in a life, but it keeps coming back and it keeps hammering away at your psyche until it dominates you and that you, you act out of that disappointment. When things don't go your way, when you don't get what you think you want, how do you, how do you process that? It may start out with God not doing something you think he should do, or it may just come out of an unanswered prayer. It may come out of something that you prayed hard for and, and you felt God was, was saying, yes, you're legitimate in praying for this, and it didn't happen. And then it's festered and it's got away from you. I don't like the idea of a culture of self-centered Christians who insist on getting their own way. That wasn't what Jesus was talking about when he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. That's not what he was talking about. This was actually more about bringing us, bringing people into a co-laboring role with him for his purposes, rather than a means to feathering one's own nest. The verse I'm talking about is in John 16, verse 23. Let's read it together. It says, And in that day you'll ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have, not asked, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, God being God has no needs. He only has wants. And that part of his nature must be reflected in us. He's interested in our needs, but he's also interested in our wants because he wants us to represent his heart. Therefore, he's interested in our wants. But that is qualified by the phrase, in my name. In my name, which means, as I have authorised. Well, which means, according to my overall mission. What you ask in my name, it will be done for you. So, what that means is, God is not our personal genie at our beck and call, that whatever we want, we just rub the lamp and he springs out and conjures it up for us. That's not what that means. It, it means what we ask according to what he has authorised, according to his mission and purpose in the earth. See, being a part of a kingdom where the king is loving and benevolent has its fringe benefits. There are things that the king, which is God, desires for us. And so it's legitimate to ask him to have strong families, strong and together families, prosperous and therefore generous lives, and healthy bodies. 
It's legitimate to ask for those things because they are things that that we see in the kingdom. They are reflective of his nature. There's a name of God for each one of those things. That's reflected in his nature. And as we ask and receive, it says that our joy will be full. Joy is the currency of heaven. Jesus, for the joy set before him, humbled himself and became a man to foster our redemption. That's, that's, joy is the desired outcome. But it's almost a polar opposite to what we read about in Proverbs. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Unrelenting disappointment makes heart sickness your frame, your condition. So it's the opposite to what God wants. A discouraged disappointed Christian is one of the most unnecessary things in the universe. Can you say amen? I don't want to say that to anybody's shame. We all have to deal with stuff at times. We all have to deal with it. And, and some of us over a lengthy period of time to actually get that disappointment and the resulting residual uh, unbelief and distrust out of our system. So how does hope deferred start? Are you alive? Hello. How does hope deferred start? What is the process? It, it can be because we don't recognize the difference between expectancy and expectation. It can be because we don't recognize that difference. Expectancy is the hope of life, the joyful anticipation of good, God moving beyond what I expect. When you're pregnant, you say, I'm expecting. There's this, there's this little person in there who's going to come out. We're going to have a relationship. You're expecting something. And, and that, that's living in expectancy. But expectation is different. It's, expectation is when you let expectancy become personal and you give it the parameters. Expectation is how I think it should work out. So we put expectations in place. It's a setup for you and I to be disappointed when we do that. I create expectations and then I wait for them to be fulfilled. That's a recipe for disappointment. When I put myself in a space where I believe that I should conduct what is happening. I take control. I I say, no God, I'm going to look after this. Okay, here's how I think it should work. Here's how I think God should work in my situation, and we tell him. You're going to do this in my family. You're going to do this in my finances. You're going to do this in my workplace. In Jesus' name, amen. And I become focused on my list. And when my list is not, hap- is, is not happening, I become focused on what God is not doing. That is a recipe for disappointment. When I put God in a box of expectations of how I think he should perform, the things I think he should do, and then I crawl in there, there's only one person in there. And that's me. And it becomes a box of limitations. We put limitations on our own experience. We limit ourselves to ourselves. Expectation is how we think it should go. Expectancy is a posture. What might God do? What can, he, what can my limitless father do in this situation? That is expectancy. We have to understand 
that difference. This actually happened to one of the great heroes of the Bible. He's actually in the New Testament, but he's actually of the Old Testament. Jesus said there was none greater that was born of women. I'm talking, of course, about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, actually, you can see this happen in his life. And Jesus walks him through a process of getting out of this, this mess that he's in. And let's, let's read the story. There's only six verses. It's, it's not a very long one. It's in Matthew chapter 11, and it's verse 1 to 6. Sorry, 11. 11, 1 to 6. Yeah, I got it right. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Jesus, he sent two disciples, two of his disciples, and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? See, John the Baptist was the one who baptized people in water. He he baptized with a baptism of repentance. This was actually in preparation for Jesus. He was overlaying society with the concept of repentance, of a change of mind, of a turning of heart towards God, which wasn't actually big in the Jewish culture. They baptized proselytes, converts to Judaism, but that was a matter of saying they would obey the rules. This is a baptism of a turning of the heart towards God. So he was overlaying culture in preparation for Jesus' ministry. And anyway, he looks up and he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He announces to the people there, that's him. That's the one. That's the Messiah. He's the one who's coming with a baptism that is greater than mine. He will, I baptize you in water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's the one. And so he makes this declaration. And Jesus comes and, and asks John to baptize him. Jesus has committed no sin, but he needs to identify himself with the human race. And John is convinced at that point that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I'm not worthy. I, I'm not qualified to baptize you. But Jesus says, come on, we've got to do it. And so they do it. Now, sometime later, John has been put in prison and things are going belly up for him. He's starting to have his doubts about who Jesus actually is. And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus and says, are you, are you actually the one? Did I get it right? And, and Jesus comes back to him. The, he, he, the inspiration of the moment, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had worn down. It had worn down through difficulty and, and through time. And so John is in prison. And what did Jesus say in his inaugural address when he, when he stood up and quoted from Isaiah 61? He said, he said the spirit of the, of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to release prisoners. And John was in prison. And, uh, and Jesus said he would release prisoners. John was in prison and, it, and he had the sense that he wasn't actually getting out and he was hoping that Jesus was the one who would release him. And so John's attention was on all the things that God wasn't doing, which was getting him out of prison. So Jesus sends back this message for John, and, it, and he says this in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus could have taken him through the biblical requirements of the Messiah and how he fulfilled those requirements. He could have talked to him about 
all the miraculous signs surrounding his birth. He could talk to him about how he fulfilled prophecies and how that was happening before the people's very eyes. But he was not answering an intellectual question. He was responding to an emotional need of a man who was in prison. So what does he tell them? He tells them the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is he doing here? He's putting John's attention back on what God is doing. Taking his attention off his own predicament. He wants this guy, who is the greatest of of woman born up to that point, he's the top of the heap, the best human to date, and Jesus wants him to finish well. When you're buried in circumstances and you, can get buried, you can't get buried without your cooperation, your, your predicament seems to be amplified and that's what the enemy is good at, amplifying your predicament. When your attention is on you, anxiety comes and this is what had happened to John and it can be hard to even eat or sleep when you're in that predicament. The enemy wants us so to be focused on the predicament and our capacity diminished He wants us trapped in a needs-only heart culture and not a proactive heart culture. Because what what really he wants to do is, he doesn't mind you having faith. He doesn't mind you coming to church. He doesn't mind you reading your Bible and praying and tithing. He just doesn't want God to be known through you in practical ways in society and culture. That's what he wants. He wants nothing to remain that testifies of the goodness of God. That's what the enemy wants. And so when, when that happens, when you are focused on yourself in a needs-only heart culture, there's no way you'll dream big. There's no way you'll risk, which are requirements of kingdom living. And so we become stifled and made smaller than what God intended us to be through our circumstances. So John is in prison. He doesn't have any big assignments left in his life. Jesus just wants him to finish well. He wants the heart issue solved, even though the circumstance isn't going to be solved. John's going to die. He's going to be executed. Jesus knows this, but he wants the heart issue, the thing that is separating John from the Father, to be resolved. And so Jesus walks him through this process to focus his attention back on what God is doing. See, in hope-deferred mode, you can't see what God is doing. You're focused on your own thing. In times of anxiety, it's hard to focus on what God's doing. In this moment, it's hard to see the hand of the Lord on anything. So Jesus once asked a series of questions to his disciples, and this is a series of questions that forms a process for us. So Jesus asked them this series of questions to get them out of that, that disappointment, unbelief sort of circumstance that they were in. They were in a ridiculous place of unbelief. And Jesus asked them three questions. He said, can't you see? And the disciples all went quiet. And so he said, can't you hear? Still quiet. And he said, can't you remember? See, these questions help me see how, all, how it all works out. Because if I allow disappointment, hope deferred, to influence my perception, I won't see what God's doing. I won't see anything. That's why he said, can't you see? They couldn't see. 
Sometimes I can still hear. You're in bad circumstances, but you can still hear the still small voice. It's just whether you trust it and whether you want to act on it. So that's why he said, I, can't you hear? In a more natural context, I can't see the way forward and I won't hear advice when I'm in that situation. But Jesus is talking about, can't you hear and see what God is doing? And so it's the last question that saves my bacon. Can't you remember? Yes, I can remember. Yes, I can remember. I can think back to the things that God has done. I can think back to the time where he invaded my life, where he came in presence, where he healed me, where he healed other people through me. Uh, I, I can think of times when he brought my members of my family back from the brink, and I can remember that, and I can, that is gold, that's bankable, and I can trust that. I remember these times. So I can remember, and you know what happens next? After I start remembering, I start hearing. And then I start seeing. And it all starts to come back. I begin to hear the quiet voice of the Father. And then I begin to see what he's doing around me because my eyes are lifted from my circumstances. So it's that last question that saves me. When I remember, you know what happens when I start remembering. And this is a similar process to the one that Jesus walked John the Baptist through. The, the power of testimony, the power of remembrance of what God has done is a powerful thing. There, there's a verse in Psalms that, that is just a, a particularly poignant verse that you can apply this to a situation. If you're in a dark place, this is a great verse for you. Psalm 119 verse 24, it says, Your testimonies also are my delight and my counsellors. When you're in a dark place, counsellors are what you need. And those testimonies of what God did, as you bring them to remembrance, they start to, they start to manifest in your mind and, and you begin to see that, yeah, God is a good God. He does do those things. And you get your eyes off your predicament and you start to see a way forward. See, God is looking to invade the predicament and sort things out. When you see yourself start to react out of disappointment, that is the time to drive into his presence, to drive yourself into his presence, to be there and be asking him. I, I, thought, I, thought, I, was, I thought I was asking the right thing. I thought I was praying for the right thing. I thought this was legitimate and it hasn't happened. We say that to God. We've got to be real and honest, gut level honesty. That's why, that's why we, Paul put in, in Ephesians... He said, be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Resolve this. Go, apply the same thing. We apply this to human beings. But apply the same thing to your relationship with the Father. Resolve it within 24 hours. Get in his presence and ask. And begin the resolution process. If, if you're pursuing something that you feel is legitimate in God and it's not happening, don't get in a huff with God and withdraw Push into him and ask. See, we, another situation in the New Testament is, is, makes this process so plain. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's the night before he was crucified, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he goes to, to ask the Father one more time if he doesn't have to do it. And he says this, the message version puts it so well. 
Mark 14, 32. They came to an area called Gethsemane. Jesus told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John with him. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. He told them, I feel bad enough right now to die. Stay here and keep vigil with me. Going a little farther ahead, he fell to the ground and prayed for a way out. Papa, Father, you can, can't you? Get me out of this. Take this cup away from me. But please, not what I want. What do you want? He comes to the point of, Father, not my will, but yours. He doesn't start from there. He goes in and he says, can this cup be taken away from me? Can it be given to Peter? Can he do it? And the mere fact that he says, not my will, but yours, means that it wasn't his will. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go to the cross. But then finally, he surrenders. And with that phrase, not my will, but yours, he's saying, not my expectation, but your capacity. I won't limit you. I'm going to put my hope in you and how this thing works out, whatever you come up with. And although Jesus doesn't get the answer he wants, he resolves the heart. The matter is settled in his heart with the Father and the lines of communication, the lines of relationship are free and clear. Trust is the requirement here. It's looking to the Father and recognising who he is and who he's been. There's a flow from eternity of God being perfect at working things out, him being perfect at working out whatever situation human beings have been in, for good. Not ever in all of eternity has he ever failed. He has a 100% record. Back from eternity to your moment, through your moment and on into eternity, he keeps his 100% record of working things out for good. That's a good father. And this is the one that we don't know if we should trust. See, there's a flow from eternity that causes us to look into our situation with the expectancy that he will work it out for good. He will work it out for good. I don't know how. He gives us the option to trust him or not. How many know that you can be as stressed as you want to be? He gives us that option to trust him or not. We have to pay attention to the meditations of our heart that we build momentum with. I just, um, I'd like the, the band to join me. Not quite close, but I'm going to roll into a, a little story to close off now. Um, I, when I was in grade three, I remember that was 1968. 1968 was a bad year for politicians in America. Um, it was the year when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember sitting in, in class and my teacher was Mr. Duffy. He was a great teacher, really, really good teacher for boys. And, um, and the, the school secretary came to the door of the classroom and called him over and he went over. And then he sort of made an announcement to the class and, and, that, that, and told us that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And then he just sort of, he just sort of, went and sat and looked out the window for five minutes and then he got up and started teaching again. And, and it, was, you know, it, was, it, was a, it was a saddish type of occasion. But the situation on the ground in America, there's a story attached to this that, that not many people know. 
See, Robert Kennedy, this, the brother of JFK, was travelling the country. He was beginning to campaign for the US presidency. And he, was, he went into Indianapolis in the, in the state of Indiana and he, he went to Indianapolis and he was speaking into an African-American ghetto that night. On the way, he receives the news that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. He's going, to, he's a white man going to an African-American ghetto and that's just happened. And so he goes in and he wants to announce it to the people and he wants to talk to them about it. He wants to try and bring calm. And so he goes in and, and he, he begins his speech and the speech is on YouTube. There's a video of it. You can watch it. He goes in and he, he speaks to them. And, and first of all, he brings the news. And there's shock and there's, there's screams. You can even hear people crying in the background. That he's break, They're breaking the news that this great civil rights leader, their hope has been, has been killed and he's been shot by a white man. Robert Kennedy immediately brings empathy by telling them that his own brother was also shot by a white man. And he urges them as Americans not to react out of hatred and disappointment, but to stay calm, and he urges compassion and love for the community around him. And, and he, as he gets to the end of it, he, he delivers this, this, this speech without any emotion, without any anger without any sadness and the crowd followed the lead but he gets to the end and he quotes he brings this brilliant quote from his days as a as a literature student at Harvard and he brings this brilliant quote he he tells the crowd that his favorite Greek poet was someone called Aeschylus and Aeschylus wrote this quote and and he, he gives it to the people he says Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until, in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. And that, to me, that just perfectly describes the process. The pain is there. God recognizes that. But he he wants to dig in. He wants to dig into our person, to our humanity, and heal that problem, to deal with that pain and disappointment. He wants to bring about an outcome that is joy. He wants to destroy the disappointment that holds us back, that holds us back to us functioning in our fullest capacity. He wants us to be the best version of ourselves. He wants us to be the person that he created us to be and disappointment lodged in our souls will only stop that. So he wants to dig in there and through his grace bring about an outcome that is joy. It perfectly describes the process of God working things out. The book of Philippians reminds us that God is the initiator of this good work in us and he is the one who will also execute its completeness. He is perfect at working things out for good. He's never failed, never once, never will. He will work it out. He always has. And this is a battle that is best won 
by surrender. Amen? Let's pray together. This morning, I'd like to pray for two groups of people.